1: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been talking about on the podcast and writing about on the Art of Manliness for the past 10 years. We've done that by creating a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills, hard skills like wilderness survival, self-defense, first aid, soft skills like personal finance, public speaking, social skills. We also provide weekly challenges to help you push yourself outside of your comfort zone, as well as accountability for your physical fitness, doing a good deed, thinking outside of yourself. We just had enrollment wrap up a few weeks ago in June. Our next enrollment is in September. If you'd like to be one of the first to know when enrollment opens up, head over to strenuouslife.co, get your email on our waiting list, and we'll send out an email about the first part of September to let you know when enrollment opens up for the Strenuous Life. Strenuouslife.co. Hope to see you there. here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, our guest today is a regular contributor to the Art of Manliness. It is Marcus Brotherton. Marcus is an author and has written over 25 books and he's focused a lot of his writing on the history of World War II, more specifically the lives of the men who fought in World War II. Uh, One of his books uh, actually reached the New York Times bestselling list. Uh, it's We Who Are Live and Remain, Untold Stories from the Band of Brothers. And today we're going to talk about Marcus's new book, Voices of the Pacific, Untold Stories from the Marine Heroes of World War II. All right, Marcus, well, welcome to the show. Thanks, I, I, this is it's, it's actually interesting. You were actually my very first podcast interview when I started oh, cool. the podcast <laughs> with, uh, with, the, um, with the Band of Brothers book. So let's talk about uh, Voices from the Pacific, yeah. Um, let's talk about your. What I found really interesting is this: you teamed up with uh, an author, a, new, a different writer on this, Adam Makos who was, who's had that great book. That he
0: yeah his his first book A Higher, Call, Higher Calling done very very well yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah so how did how did that partnership come about.
0: Yeah, I I met Adam a number of years ago at an air show and worked with him on several editing projects over the years. Uh, He's a very smart guy, very driven. He's got a huge heart of compassion for the men for telling their stories. And so when it came to this project, Voices of the Pacific, um, unlike the Men of Easy Company Association, it was much more difficult to track down the Marines who were featured in the Pacific. There just wasn't one one main association for them, so Adam's company had spent two years doing this, meeting the man, explaining the project, winning their trust, and then uh, the time came to do an oral history project. Adam called me up and said, "Hey, you know, you've done this before with We Were Alive and Remain. Time is of the essence with these men and their ages. Let's join resources, do it together. And, you know, it's proved a good a good partnership all the way through."
1: Well, fantastic. Uh, that actually is, you just mentioned something that leads me to my next question: um, is the reason why it just seems like there's the perception is out there that the men who fought in the Pacific don't get as much attention as the men who fought in Europe, like the band of brothers is a reason of that because they're so hard to track down. Is that part of the reason why there hasn't been much attention brought to these, these men?
0: Uh, undoubtedly. I, you know, I think the, I think the spotlight is probably increasing over the years. Um, Certainly, battles like Guadalcanal and Okinawa, they received good coverage. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, he produced those two movies, um, Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima. So um, it's a more grisly side of the war, I'd say. I mean, certainly there were atrocities in the European campaigns, but the battles in the Pacific, by and large, I'd say you need a stronger stomach to take them. So that maybe just keeps keeps more people away.
1: Hmm. Well, so let what sort? Of, what were some of the differences? I mean, why? Why were the the, the battles more atrocious in the Pacific than, uh, say, in Europe?
0: Yeah, I can think of at least uh, three reasons there. One one was just the climate was certainly different. I mean, uh, the Battle of Bastogne in in Europe it was all about snow and cold and not having enough warm clothes. The battle for say, Peleliu was all about heat. You've got one hundred and twenty degree degree days. The men are all thirsty, there's not enough water in their canteens, there's flies everywhere. Uh, and then and then it's just a it's just a different enemy. I mean, Imperial Japan was a, a pre modern society in many ways. You have this emperor Hirohito, who's the he's the political head of the state of Japan during World War Two, and then he's also of considered sacred, so he's believed to be uh directly descended from a sun god, I think it was. So he's considered divinity. And that creates a climate where a lot of the Japanese soldiers during World War Two they're really fanatical in their devotion to him. They're willing to die in his honor rather than being captured by the enemy, and and so so you really have that different worldview, you know. And in, in Germany, um, you, you you have at least a, well, at least a semblance of of Judeo Christian worldview among the German soldiers. Anyway, they recognize such things as mercy and tolerance and compassion, basically what the Western world considers fair play. Uh, by contrast, in Japan, you have a worldview that considers mercy, tolerance and compassion to be signs of weakness. So in Japan, if, you're ind- if your enemy surrenders to you, you wouldn't treat him with mercy, you treat him with contempt. Surrender in the eyes of the imperial Japanese soldiers is a sign of weakness and cowardice. So the Japanese soldier, uh, even, even, even if, if he's being beaten, he will not surrender. He's going to die by suicide first. And this creates a very brutal enemy, a very aggressive enemy it's an enemy who doesn't fight by the same rules that are understood by the Western world,
1: and I, and I imagine that was a big culture shock for a lot of these young men who were used to that notion of fair play, and they come to a to an enemy who has no regard for that whatsoever.
0: Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And yeah, talking about the the climate and the weather, that was something that really jumped out to me while I was reading the book. The thing that really struck. Stuck out to me was the emphasis on the jungle rot. A lot of those, a lot of the men brought up the this the fighting jungle rot. Can you kind of describe what jungle rot was?
0: Um, it jungle rot, uh, a horrible condition. Um, you might call it jock itch today, but uh, it would be like a hundred times worse, and uh, it would be in more areas of your body than than you care to imagine. So it it, it, it comes from a a situation where you're just always wet all the time and and coupled with the wet you're always in this really hot uh humid climate.
1: Yeah. And it seems like a lot a lot of these men too uh got malaria and they had it for 30 40 years after the war they're battling this.
0: Yeah, malaria very uh, tricky and sneaky degrees uh a disease where um you know it, it can sort of sort of uh, hide in your spleen I believe it is and like you're saying um, well, you can be fighting it for uh, for years and years to come. So, uh, very very tough situation
1: there. Yeah, and another aspect of the, the their environment that I found was you know different from uh, say what the Band of Brothers faced was these islands. When we think of like islands in the Pacific, I think the sort of idealized version of islands in the Pacific comes to mind, like you know sandy beaches, pristine waters. But the islands that these men were fighting on were some were just made of coral. Like it wasn't made of sand. Some were made of just volcanic ash and then some were just, just dense jungle. So these weren't like typical islands, I guess.
0: Yeah. Pretty difficult fighting conditions all around. And you think about, uh, how many times a soldier may be down his knees or on his belly and, you know, crawling along, uh, you know, to, to keep out of sight of, of, uh, gunfire. And if you're, if you're, uh, falling down on coral, you know, 10 times within an hour. I mean, that's going to really rip up your front pretty easily, pretty quickly. So, it's just brutal conditions these guys are fighting in.
1: Yeah, and even digging foxholes was impossible. Like they yeah. could, you know, just kind of get like a shallow hole and that was their foxhole. Um, one thing that struck out to me as I was reading this book uh was the age of these the men who fought in the Pacific. I mean, we're talking 16, 17 years old with some of them uh was that something common in the marines during world war 2?
0: Uh yeah, great question. It may have been just the men we featured in this book. Um you know young enlistments were were fairly similar across the board. I, I think he had to actually be 18 to go in, but a lot of men just yeah, you know, it's not like you had really uh, concrete um uh, documents back then in, in many ways. So, um I, you know, I think I think one of the factors that really sets apart the study of the, of the Pacific is uh, is length of time that the men fought for, you know. In, in Band of Brothers, you have a much long trainer training period to begin with, and essentially the men they fight for about a year from D-Day, June 1944, to um, probably May 1945 in Austria, where the the high points may begin to be rotated home. So the Marines featured in the Pacific, by contrast, they're fighting from oh, say like August 1942, which is Guadalcanal, until. Um, August August 1945, VJ Day, and then even some of them until 1946, they're fighting into occupied China. So it's, it's more like three years of battle there, uh, just a longer series of campaigns on that side of the world.
1: Hmm. And I also found it interesting how a lot of these men ended up in the Marines. Um, and a lot of times it was just sort of happenstance that they ended up in the marines like they they want they tried to get into the navy but the navy rejected them they tried to get in the army but the army rejected them and then they showed up at the marine recruiting office and they're like okay yeah we'll take you um it wasn't like the marine was were were their first choice in a lot of cases
0: yeah like uh, sid phillips i believe it was it was just the shortest line and he had to get back to work or school or something like that he's like well you know or (laughs) <laughs> we can either wait for an hour in this line or we can wait for five minutes in the line for the Marines. So that's how he became a, a Marine.
1: It's amazing like that the way you make that choice could have such life altering, you know, life altering impact on you. Um, yeah. know, yeah, He could have been a band of brother, but because he, oh, it's a shorter line. I'm going to go serve <laughs> in the Pacific now. Yeah. Um. So what's, let's talk about the men today. What's the average age of the veterans who have, Survived?
0: Uh, Most of the men we talked to, late 80s, early 90s. Um, One of the men is 95, Um, Shagrier, yeah. So it's, they're they're all, time is ticking, like we say.
1: Yeah. And how many of them are left?
0: Uh, I couldn't speak for the Marines of the 1st Division, all told. Um, The men featured in our book, I think it's all except one or two now, yeah.
1: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Marcus, is there anything, I mean, You've been studying uh, or talking to World War II veterans for several years now, Um, but is there any way that you've changed as a man after talking to these specific men who served in the Pacific?
0: Well, I'm I'm continually astounded, uh, continually astounded and continually challenged really by the men I I meet in these projects. Um, A few years back, I was at an air show, I met T.I. Miller, who's featured in the book, and yeah, uh, you know, after the war, Ti he comes home, and right away marries his childhood sweetheart, and he finds the only job that he can find in West Virginia, uh, where a young man can get without education, and that's mining coal. So, uh... you know, he goes to work right away in the coal mines. Pretty tough to think you're 22, 23, and, and you're mining coal all day long. So, one of his his first jobs is called cleaning belt, and it's this dusty, heavy job. It's he's down in the in the bowels of the mine just every day in darkness, uh, just watching this belt go by, basically. And uh, like you're talking about malaria, T.I. had contacts malaria back in the Pacific. And uh, it, it, one of those things that uh, you, know, you battle it the rest of your life, it just sort of shows up without warning any time and anywhere. And, and symptomatically, it's fevers and chills and aches so bad, you think your body's going to rattle apart, T.I. said. So one day uh, T.I. Miller is down in the coal mine, he's cleaning belt, and he, he feels this malarial fever coming on very quickly, very suddenly, and, and he's almost instantly in this delirium, and uh, he's beginning to hallucinate. And you, know, you think if you or I are, are beginning to hallucinate, you know we might see some scary things or some normal things, but uh, T.I. goes back in his, in his mind, and, and he begins to hallucinate about all the horrors he's faced during the war. So he starts literally seeing these dead Japanese soldiers riding by on a belt in front of him, you know, basically these these phantoms are in front of him. And and he's he's still with it enough to know that he needs to get to the surface pretty quickly. So um he
1: Wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? So, if you want to try fast growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code manliness. Offers valid for a limited time, terms and conditions may apply. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes.
0: Calls over another miner, and, and the other miner helps him get to the surface and up to the sun, and, and his his apparitions basically disappear once he gets to the surface. So he, he goes to the hospital, he spends another twenty days in, in the in the VA hospital recovering from his fever. Uh, the point of that story is I, I, a story like that. I meet a man like that who tells me that story face to face, and I just go, "Wow, you know that helps me put my own job into perspective. You know, we all have bad days at work." even though uh, you know some of, us, some of us have really great jobs. But the point is we're not down in the darkness of a coal mine fighting off malarial attacks while having hallucinations of dead Japanese soldiers. And so a thought like that goes a, just a long way toward me being grateful today.
1: Also by Flint and Tinder, exclusively at Huckberry's. Fall's almost here. It's time to bust out those classic fall staples. Denim, Henleys, button-down Oxfords, hoodies, and you can find all this stuff at Huckberry.com with their Flint and Tinder line. Flint and Tinder, my whole wardrobe is pretty much Flint and Tinder at this point. I've got Henleys, I've got Tees, I've got buttoned-out Oxfords from them. I got my cool trucker jacket that I'm ready to bust out when it starts cooling off a bit. All of it's made in the USA. It's gonna last you a lifetime. Plus, they got their 10-year hoodie, my favorite hoodie. I've had it for, I think, five years. So I'm going like halfway through the 10-year hoodie guarantee. Check it out. Go to Huckberry.com check out the Flynn Tinder link. It's very prominent there. Use code ART15 at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase from Huckberry. So Huckberry.com, ART15 for your 15% off your first purchase and check out the Flynn Tinder line. You won't regret it. And now back to the show. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Is there, any, is there another story from uh, the interviews you, you took part in that really stuck out to you?
0: One of the one of the saddest stories, I think, uh, Jim Young. He tells this. Uh, it's, it's a pretty tragic narrative, really. One day, the the Navy is helping su- supply the Marines um, on Guadalcanal, I believe it is. And so, Jim Young, he has come down with his bad case of hemorrhoids, which he kind of said with, with a chuckle when he when he told me about it. And so, the lieutenant uh, calls him over, <clears throat> gives him this order, he says, "Hey, you know, take twelve men, your squad leader, whatever, you know, go down to the beach, help unload this destroyer." And he's like, man, I can hardly walk, much less help unload a ship. So the lieutenant comes and calls over the corpsman. The checks him out and says, oh, yeah, you know, this uh, poor uh, poor Jim Young, he can barely walk. And so uh, the, the lieutenant, he calls another man to take Jim Young's place. And this other man's name is Clifton Barter. He's a corporal. So uh, Clifton Barter and the men, they go down to the beach, they begin to unload the ship. And just sort of a typical uh, afternoon on, on Guadalcanal uh air raids start and uh enemy planes fly over and bombs start falling down on on the men. So uh the the, the men all they all jump in the trucks, they they try to make a run for it. It's too late, bombs are raining down on them. And uh they all they all jump in this old bomb crater thinking they're gonna be safe altogether, but uh it's it pretty much proves to be a direct hit and one of the bombs falls right on top of them. So one of the Marines survives the blast <clears throat> and he runs back to the company with the news. Uh the lieutenant and Jim Young and all the guys, they jump in a the Jeep, they race to the spot, and they say that when they get there it's just a just a bloodbath. You know, five of the guys are dead. Everybody's badly wounded. You can hardly tell who's who. And Jim Young finally locates uh Corporal Barter, the guy who's taken his place. And Barter is badly wounded. He's just begging for water. And uh, Jim Young said a, a fragment about the size of a softball had gone through this guy. And so they're, they're really, they're, there really there not anything more that they can do for, uh, for Corporal Barter. And sure enough, there's a few last words spoken, and then, and then Corporal Barter dies. So Jim Young is telling me this story. I mean, it's 67-some years later. And uh, tough as nails, Marines. And he, he's, his voice is choking. His voice is cracking when he's telling me the story. And he, he says, you know, it, is, it was my fault that this man was killed instead of me. You know, it was supposed to be my working party, but it's, he, he died so that I could live. So, you know, a story like that, I, I'm, just, I'm just hanging on, just listening to it. And it's so much power, so much poignancy, it's so much selflessness coming through. Uh, this whole theme of another man dies so that, so that you can live. And, and Jim Young says, you know, how are you going to live out the rest of your days in light of that fact? That's just a, it's just a powerful statement.
1: Wow, that is really powerful. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, about Jim Young a little bit. Did, did he talk about how he dealt with that uh, grief or that feeling of responsibility um, when he came home to civilian life?
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's a story that, strangely enough, is not isolated to him. I mean, it's basically what happened in uh, Saving Private Ryan, and and I think a man lives with a, a sense of obligation and a sense of uh, on, on common gratitude, and uh, he, he he wants to live his life uh, dedicated uh, to somebody uh, in terms of what was given to
1: him. Yeah, and what I loved about the book too is that you don't stop. Uh, with this, their story when the war is over. You you follow up with them and see you ask them about their life after the war. And what I found interesting with this book and also with um, your interviews with the the men who f- served with the band of brothers is it seems that for the most part, uh, men who served during World War II, they had their wounds and they had their emotional scars, but for the most part, they seemed well-adjusted. They They got back into civilian life. They had jobs and... I guess maybe maybe it's just my perception. It's perhaps it's wrong, um, but that you didn't see a lot of the you know post traumatic stress syndrome that you're seeing a, or post traumatic stress disorder that you see in a lot of our returning veterans today in our most recent wars. Um, is that perception correct? I mean, was did, did, did a lot of guys who served in World War II, a lot of men, come back and get back into civilian life okay, um, or did they actually have the sort of those scars?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It may simply be the perspective of time that, that we're dealing with here in the books. I, I'm not positive if the veterans of World War II adjusted any better. Maybe it's just the perception. Like I say, um, sometimes they just didn't talk about it. You know, back in that generation, it just uh, a man came home, and a lot of the vets have talked to say, "Well, you know, nobody wanted to hear what I had to say, so uh, so I just climbed up for the rest of my life and, until I was, uh, you know, elderly or whatever." Um, there, there certainly were a lot of stories, um, you know, men coming home, dealing with nightmares, flashbacks, rage, depression. Um, men of that generational turn to alcohol a lot of the time. It was kind of that generation's mm-hmm. drug of choice. And so uh, I'd say more that the veterans I've talked to would say that war affects any man, you know, no matter what time, what, what time period he lives in. So it's, it, it's it really raising a valid question here, and I don't have all the specific answers to it. It's, it's um, you know, can we do anything differently or better as a country and a culture to help our returning soldiers? Really, that's what the question
1: is. Yeah. It, and, it, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, it, it seemed to me that in your interviews that a lot of these men had communities, like tight-knit communities to return home to. Um, and tighter than today, maybe, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we had that less so today. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of people, they come home and you have these soldiers and they're just sitting in an apartment by themselves away mm-hmm. from family, no friends. Um, and I guess too. Also, one, one thing I found very interesting about uh, soldiers who fought in world war II they have the reunions, right. Where they'd get back mm-hmm. together. And I don't know, is that, is that something that's common with more recent veterans? Do they have reunions or is it too soon for that?
0: I, I honestly don't know. I mean, you hear about them in the news once in a while. Um, uh, Donovan Campbell wrote that great book, uh, was it Joker One, where he really talks about the camaraderie that his men felt, and and he really led with that, uh, really a theme of love is the word he uses, which is kind of a word that you don't expect, um, uh, you know, veterans really to use, but that was really the, the kind of the guiding and shepherding principle that he had with his men. So, um, it's it's a good question. I mean, you know, how how do we help veterans of today transition back to our communities, to our workplaces, to our training programs our universities our churches it's, it's it's a great question and uh you know certainly begins with gratitude i think we do see that much more today than we did you know say with the vietnam era um and, and yet gratitude can't can't exist on an isolated plane it's it, gratitude has got to be expressed uh with actions followed up with actions you know it begins by saying thanks for what you did and then followed up with deeds. so yeah, great yeah.
1: question. One of the things that I love what you do with your writing on your blog, and you've done it on when you've written articles for The Art of Manliness, is extracting lessons that men today can apply to their lives um, from these soldiers who fought in World War II. What are some of the lessons that you think that men can take today, um, can take from the men who fought in the Pacific?
0: Yeah um and i always want to let the men speak for themselves as much as possible and so um most of the lessons that i do talk about are lessons that they've actually they've actually taught me about and, and things that they want to convey to the men so i guess i want to be careful to answer that question like i don't really i don't want to stand in place of the men um and yet it, it is really hard as a journalist to not uh, interact with this material and and have it uh, affect you as a man, or or have it—you uh, know—life lessons are often universal in terms of humanity. So, um, it, you think about—you um, know—big lessons of war, and I think uh, we, we see a lot of iconic images today, um, both from wars of yesteryear and, and wars of today. And I think I think iconic images of national triumph are really a good thing. You know, you think about uh the 82nd airborne division marching in uh, new york times uh or a new york uh, ticker tape parade um, or you think of the image of the the nurse who kisses a sailor in times square after japan's surrender and and those those images are really good really really good and yet it's the other images of war that we also need to continually bring to national forefront it's it's the bloody images the ghoulish images it's, it's um, you know, it's Dan Lawler. He's, uh, there's that uh, story in the book of he, he finds this five-year-old girl in, in Okinawa, a civilian girl, and, uh, and she, she wraps her tiny arms around his neck, and he just weeps at the injustice of civilians being caught in crossfire. I mean, that's an image we, we want to burn into the consciousness today. Or, you know, Clarence Ray, uh, there's a scene in the book with him. In the, he goes to this hospital on Guam after he's wounded in the arm. And Clarence Ray, he glances around the hospital ward, and just, he can kind of take them off one by one. There's a man with both legs amputated. There's another man with his jaw shot off. There's another man who's burned so badly, he, he doesn't look human anymore. And that's that's really the message of this book. It's war is war, and we can never forget that.
1: Hmm. Um, very powerful stuff. Um, so Marcus, you've Interviewed you've talked to men and interviewed men who fought in Europe. You've talked to men and interviewed men who fought in the Pacific. Whose story do you plan on capturing next?
0: Mm. Well, it's always a great question. I'm I'm always on the lookout for the next great story. Um, you know, I strangely enough, I've been doing a lot of uh I, I run an editorial company in in uh in, in my off days, I suppose. Or, or not my off days, but in my on my other time. And I've been doing a lot of editing work lately with historical fiction, which really fascinates me. So, um, I just edited a project by a guy named Sean Hoffman. He's a movie producer in Hollywood, and he wrote a historically based novel called Samson. It's about boxers in Auschwitz. And so, Sean, um, he was uncovering he uncovered the fact that that uh, Nazi guards they used to hold boxing matches on weekends for entertainment, and basically they'd get two Jewish prisoners to fight. And the winners would receive extra food rations, and the loser would go to the gas chambers. So, I think that book's gonna be out maybe late this summer. Um, so, just projects like that, I'm, I'm always on the lookout, just the next the next powerful
1: story. Very great stuff. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for your time. Voices uh, of the Pacific was a great book, and uh, I can't wait to. I hope my readers go out there and, and check it out.
0: Uh, thanks, Brad. It's always great to talk.
1: Our guest today was Marcus Brotherton. Marcus is the author of the book. Voices of the Pacific, Untold Stories of the Marine Heroes of World War II. You can find that book on Amazon.com or any other bookstore. And you can find out more about Marcus's work at MarcusBrotherton.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at ArtOfManliness.com. And until next time, stay manly.